The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. If you have your Bible or if you there's a pew Bible, the very last two chapters in the Bible is what we're looking at, and it's mainly just Revelation 21, so it's not too hard to find. Just go to the end of the Bible and back up one chapter, and you're there. If you don't have a Bible, those pew Bibles are meant to be taken, so if you want to take a Bible home with you, you take that. That's our gift to you. I'd love for you to have that. Um, I was in quarantine last week with COVID, and so I thought, well, I'm going to watch the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to watch the and we had all the extended versions, and I thought, I'm just going to do it. So, yeah, 20 hours. I mean, I had no idea they were that long, and by the time it was done, I was done. I mean, it was a little, the last one was like four and a half hours, but what I loved in watching, there were several things that I really appreciated, but I loved the language of the Shire, and there's this constant going back, I want to just go back to the Shire. And you get the sense of, that the Shire is the good life, right? It's, it's where everything works. Everything is just, it's home. It's Eden. It is a veritable Eden. It's the way things are supposed to be. And as you're going through this story now, they're on this adventure. They've been called to something much bigger than themselves. And what we see is that the beauty of friendship, where would Frodo be without Sam? Where would Pippin be without Mary? Where would Gimli be without Legolas? Friendship is a big deal in that story because they help you get through the trials and the, the hardships and the challenges of this life. And my favorite quote of the, is the end of Two Towers and Frodo's at his end and he says, I can't do this, Sam. I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't know, you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass, a new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. They, that meant something. And even if, they, if you were too small to understand why, but I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know why. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And then Frodo says, well, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam Wise says that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Well, I want you to see that this morning as you think through Revelation 21. I want you to hear the echoes that so much of what you're going to hear, I'm going to read Revelation 21 through 22.5, are all of these echoes back to Eden. What was so beautiful about Eden is that God was with them. God walked with them. The sanctuary was here on earth, and God was with his people. They were, they were eating of the tree of life. 
And we don't see the tree and we don't see God immediately dwelling with his people except in the temple and the rest of scripture, right? There's a few places where God shows up, but it's in the temple. And what you're being shown here in this picture is the Eden of the temple is this, the the temple was a cube. And what he's describing here is a temple. And the idea is that God's presence now is now filling the whole earth, and so the idea is that we're going back to Eden. This is going to be better than, than even the Shire. This is the way things are supposed to be. Hear the good news, beginning at Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I'll just make a couple comments as I'm reading this. This is really shocking to read in the original language and you realize these are all aorist. It, it's past tense. I mean, he's, he saw, in this, it's the new heaven and the new earth. He saw, sees them for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea is no more. And the idea of the sea is everything that's terrifying in, for the people of God in the, in the Hebrew scriptures is God flooded the whole earth with a flood. He delivered the, them at the Red Sea with, with, the, with water, and the waters were terrifying because the waters represented chaos. And he, it's not saying there's not going to be Florida, okay? He's not saying there's not going to be islands and beautiful lush beaches. And there's still going to be Hawaii, folks, okay? You can still, if you don't make it there in this life, you're going to get that chance, okay? So it doesn't mean that. It means the chaos is no more. And then he says, I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And literally, it's plural. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So you get new, new, new four times in five verses, okay? New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, making all things new. And then you're given the first of the seven things that are gone. Okay, he's going to give you seven things that aren't going to be anymore. Because sometimes like a, a negative picture, and you go into the negative room when you make a picture, the negative is really important because it actually highlights the positive by knowing what's not going to be there, right? There's going to be no mourning, no crying, no pain. Those things are gone, no tears, no dark, uh, and then no curse, no sin. And all that's come from, from Genesis 3 on to the rest of the Bible is just frustration, there's been chaos, there's because of sin, and thankfully Christ has come, and and now we're seeing that it's all going to be good riddance. There's not going to be any sirens. There's not going to be any, a lot of us are going to be out of work. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, as a pastor, I mean, you deal with issues of People have issues of sin. I mean, I, I think of like, you know, Dave Pasty and, and, you know, lawyers. I mean, you make a living off of other people's mistakes, right? You know, I mean, there's, what's he going to do? I mean, God, he's, he's fighting for justice. Where's Dave? I hope he's here. All right, man. I love what you're doing. But 
you're going to be in for a new calling. I mean, you know, you're fighting for justice here, but there, there will be perfect justice. It will, things will work. And a lot of it, I mean, if you're, if you're a doctor, everybody's healed. What's the doctor going to do? You know, there's a lot of these are going to be, because they're, they're gone. There's going to be all those things that are, um, that make this life so frustrating and difficult passed away. And he was on the throne and said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's what you need to be a part of the new heavens and new earth. It's this thing called thirst. It's a need that I need Jesus. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be, uh, he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so there is this, you know, you're, you're seeing a contrast between Babylon, which if you read the book of Revelation, Babylon is this city, and the city is really a whore as, as it's being portrayed. And, and there's all kinds of seduction, and, there's, and there, the city is made to think, oh, it's all here. This is great, everything. And, it's, and in reality, it's rotten. And so you have this contrast of the beautiful bride coming down now as Babylon has been done away with. And for there to be a true heaven, you have to rid it of, of all of it, purge it of all of its impurities, all of its evil. And, and the reality is we all have this in our hearts. And so Christ has come to pay for our sin. And for those who don't receive this gift, that want nothing to do with him, these are the people that have lived for the, all these other things. You read the end of Revelation 20, and it just says, it talks about this lake of fire. And there is a couple references here to judgment that are still here is a warning to us then came out one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying come I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb and he carried me away uh, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God Having the glory of God, its radiance like a, a most rare jewel, jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the three uh, east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And... I hope you understand that this is figurative language, okay? It doesn't mean it's not less true. It's, it's still true. But, it, you know, when Jesus says we're to be like doves, you know, C.S. Lewis says he doesn't mean we're to lay eggs, you know. And so when he's describing this idea of 12 and uh, the apostles and then uh, describing the people of Israel, the idea is that the fullness of God's people before Christ, uh, of God's people of Israel before Christ came, and of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, the fullness of his people will be there and the fullness of the church now will be there. And the idea of the gates, you know, is presenting this idea that it's this city, but the city, the gates are never shut. 
and there's no intruders. You don't have to, to lock your doors. Nobody's going to steal your car. Nobody's going to steal your stuff. It's going to be this idea of perfection. But the, the language is figurative, and it's, and it's, we'll keep going. And he's, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lie four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, where else do you have a perfect cube? I mean, this is ringing with Ezekiel 40 to 47. If you're not familiar with Ezekiel 40, 47, you wouldn't get this. Or if you're not familiar with the whole temple and the whole holy of holies, the whole, it's, it's a cube. It's described as a cube where everything is equal in measurement of height, width, and length. And so you're getting the same thing here to show us that the temple isn't just a part of the city. The temple is the city. And now the whole, the whole uh, of paradise, of the new heavens, new earth, is God's dwelling place. And it's being described in the same language. So you would echo back and remember, oh yeah, I remember that's where God met with his people directly. And they could go into the Holy Holies, and they'd, but they could only go in once a year. And, and the priest would go in and he'd have on his, his breastplate. And his breastplate had all these different stones. And all these stones are gonna be described right here to remind you, you're the priest. You now have his name on your forehead. And you get to come into the Holy of Holies not once a year, but all the time. So that's what he's described. So then he goes on and he says, the walls were built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the walls of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made up of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The gates will never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And so now you're being pictured this incredible, luscious city with park, with a rivers, the river running down through it, and then the just parks of beautiful, where, the, where there's the tree of life and the 12 kinds of fruit. The idea is that there's all kinds of trees, and these trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. There's nothing cursed. There's not going to be any thorns on those roses. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. 
They will see his face. And interestingly, it's singular. Because it just said that, you know, there's the throne of God and the Lamb, and yet they will see not their face, but his face, Jesus' face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow. Now, to understand this, I mean, this is so overwhelming. I'm like trying to take a five-gallon bucket and scoop out some of the Atlantic Ocean and describe the whole Atlantic Ocean to you. It's massive. And I do think this is like an acquired taste because you read this, and if you're just reading this for the first time, you're like, really? This is, this is heaven? Like, is this, is this going to be all that great because a lot of what's being described seems like it's symbolic. And even John has to say several times, matter of fact, um, he, he keeps using this word like, like he's doing the best he can. But when he describes verse 11, he, you know, having the glory of God, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. I mean, he's saying it's so much better than that, but I'm just giving you the best that I can. It's like that. And then in verse 18, he tells you that the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Now, you can't see through gold. I mean, he's just saying it's, but it's like clear glass. It's something so much, it's beyond what he can describe, but he's doing his best. And then at the end of verse 21, he's describing again, the the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. It's this idea of like, like, like. It's, it's beyond what he's able to describe, but he's doing his best of the vision that he's been given. And the reason I would say that this is somewhat of an acquired taste is that you have to continue to read the whole of Scripture and to get the bigger picture and the bigger story. Otherwise, you're reading this, and it's like you're, you're, you're being introduced at the beginning of, of Pride and Prejudice, and you're being introduced to Darcy, and when you first learn about Darcy, you're thinking, this guy's kind of rude. This guy's kind of aloof. He seems uh, stern. He doesn't seem very happy. He doesn't seem very joyful. He seems unloving. He seems arrogant, you know? And, and, but as you start to go through the story and you start to realize Oh my goodness, look at this guy, Darcy. Look, look at the things that he's done. Look at how he's delivered. He's, he's used his wealth. To, he's laid down his life for other people. And I had thought he was just this awful person, and I realized, wait a minute, he's not the problem. I have been the problem. And, and like every Jane Austen movie kind of has that trick to it, Right? Isn't that the way we think about Jesus and God? Is that it's an acquired taste, and at first we think he's the problem. I mean, this is telling us that that we will be we'll see his face, and it's like for most of us that's like terrifying because we know we've blown it. We haven't like you know lived these wonderful life. I mean, not too many of you out there feel like man. I was just I just kicked it in 2023. I mean, I just crushed it. Anybody just feel like they just crushed it spiritually last year? I mean, man, I just I just rock and roll, man. It was awesome. Nobody feels like that. Everybody feels like, man, if, if I get there and it's like, okay, on display in theater one is all of Charlie Bale's thoughts this past year. Like, who wants to go to that scene, right? I mean, for all of us, that, thankfully, if you're in Christ and if not, 
Put your trust in him because that's why he went to the cross. He was laid bare. He was exposed. He took all of our sin and shame on a cross so that when we, when we see him, we realize he really loves us. He's a lot better than Darcy. He's the lover of our souls. But it's an acquired taste because you have to get to know the, the story, you know? And the more you know the story, you realize how good God is in all of this. And so, but what I want you to see is just reminding you that Eden is really the picture here. So there's a, there's a book by G.K. Beale, and it's called God Dwells Among Us. And the whole point, I just kind of, you got to think with me for a little bit, but just consider this for a moment. He says, Revelation 21 pictures the entire cosmos and the new creation as the dwelling place of God. In Genesis 1 and 2, going back to the beginning, Eden is the dwelling place of God, and God, can, God um, continues to bless Adam and Eve, and he tells them to, to be fruitful and multiply and to expand their boundaries, right, to take dominion on the whole earth. And, that, and while God's original call seems to be thwarted by sin in, in Genesis 3, and it, and it is, and they're banished from the garden. God continues to establish his dwelling place among the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, until the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. And then after the destruction of Solomon's temple, the prophets anticipate the coming of a new and expanding temple. And these prophecies begin to be fulfilled in Jesus and the church. And the church is now the dwelling place of God. And we are now called the living stones as we follow him who is the cornerstone, right? And we're living stones and we're being built up and it's being this description of a temple. But he says, the mission uh, does, does not begin with the great commission of Matthew 28. The mission is God's heartbeat goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And it continues until the new heavens and new earth become the dwelling place of the Lord God Almighty. And so this ultimate picture of the whole earth being filled with God's presence fulfills God's original intention from the sanctuary of Eden. And so God's putting it all back together again. And so this is, this is just his book. I'm going to give you a real summary. Chapter 1, I'm just going to give you the title headings. Eden is a temple. Chapter 2, expanding Eden. Chapter 3, Eden lost. That would be the fall. Chapter 4, Eden remixed. Chapter 5, Eden restored. Chapter 6, Eden rebuilt. Chapter 7, Eden expanding. Chapter 8, Eden's ministry. Chapter 9, Eden completed. And chapter 10, why haven't I seen this before? <laughs> I like that. I mean, the whole book is really all about Eden, and it's finally going to be back here again. It's like the idea of the Shire, you know, keeps coming back into the language of on this adventure. I just want to go back to the Shire. You're going to make it back. That's the picture here. And so in Revelation 21, then we get the dimensions of the length and the width and the height. They're equal, and it's very similar to the language that's used all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, where it refers to the length and the breadth and the height being equal in measurement, referring to the temple. And the precious stones that are, that are spoken of in Revelation 21, 18, 21, they allude to the description of Solomon's temple, overlaid with gold and filled with precious stones, okay? And so in Revelation 21, what we have is God's presence, and the Holy of Holies is now expanded to the whole earth. The city's now paved with gold. 
just like the Holy of Holies of Israel's temple. And the whole city is a cube, just as the Holy of Holies was a cube. And since the Holy of Holies has now expanded now to fill the, the new creation, the whole earth. And so, you know, as a result, the three sections of Israel's old temple, the three sections were the Holy of Holies, the holy place, and the outer courtyard, they're no longer found in the temple in Revelation 21 because God's presence now has expanded out of the Holy of Holies to cover the heavens and the earth. Lastly, he talked about the right of the high priest. Was, he was to wear God's name on his forehead, literally. And now it's extended to all people of the new creation, all of whom will be a high priest with God's name on their foreheads. And they're not standing there one day a year, but now and forever, they're in God's presence. Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, which is this great, like, 400-page book about heaven, he says, I've never been to heaven, yet I miss it. Eden's in my blood. The best things of life are souvenirs from Eden, appetizers of the new earth. There's just enough of them to keep us going, but never enough to make us satisfied with the world as it is or ourselves as we are. We live between Eden and the new earth, pulled toward what we once were and what we yet shall be. You see? And so what we're seeing here is that paradise lost becomes paradise regained. And Eden began with rivers and a tree of life, and now we see a river running through the city and the tree of life, and the new Jerusalem is not the earthly Jerusalem in Israel, but rather it's the Jerusalem above, it's the city of God. And now we see God dwelling with his people once again. The original audience would have gotten this, and it, can imagine what an encouragement this would have been to people that were facing persecution under Roman rule and trying to be snuffed out and they were greatly persecuted and they're, they're getting this as a vision of what it's going to look like when it's done. And so the Bible begins with a garden and yet it ends in a city. And Abraham was looking forward to what? A city with foundations. He was looking for the city to come and God has prepared for them a city. And you think of all the, the idea of this idea of prepared it's a good one to just take your little search engine and just search every reference to prepared, preparing, or prepared. Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared, right, for those who love him. And Jesus says, I've gone to do what? Prepare a place for you. And then you have this parable of in, in the sheep and the goats, and we're, we're given this little obscure verse where Jesus says, that the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed from my, by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He's been preparing. And how does this chapter begin? I saw heaven, this new Jerusalem coming down prepared as a bride for her husband. I was gonna type this whole sermon, just Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Because what are we to do now? We're to do the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in them. And we're to live, I mean, so much of this life is so frustrating, right? There's, there's all these light and momentary afflictions, but what are they doing? Preparing us for what? Preparing us for the greater, for glory to come. They're preparing. God is shaping us 
I came across a story this week of a, of a guy that was, he was really discouraged and he was, he, you know, all the sufferings of this life and he just went on a walk. And as he went on a walk, he sees a foreman out there and the guy is, is chiseling and he's building, uh, helping build a church. And he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm shaping this thing here so that it will fit up there. And the guy says, I get it. I see what God's doing. He's shaping all this stuff here so it will fit there in glory. He's shaping us here. He's preparing us. And how does he do that? He does it through the hardships. Because if everything worked in this life, would we really want to go to heaven? Like we think, man, we've arrived here. But, you know, God has a way of, of kicking, pulling out the carpet, pulling out the stops and reminding us, no, no, the best is yet to come. Now, what I want us to see from this passage is I want you to see this interesting idea that there's a new heaven and new earth coming down, but it doesn't mean that, that this world is like, you know, this idea of like, uh, you know, we sing this song, I'll fly away, you know, and the idea is that it's very Gnostic, you know, the idea is that this world's bad, the body's bad, if I can just get out of here, I'll be good. I'll fly away and go to glory and, and you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. This whole world's going, going to pot. I don't care. I'm just going to, this whole year, I'm just going to live like an ostrich. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand. I don't care what happens. You know, we're not to be like that, right? We're to be very engaged as his people. And the idea is this. Just try to follow through with this idea of Second of Peter 3 talks about the world is going to, when the Lord comes again, there is going to be a purification. It's going to be this cataclysmic purification, but it's not a destruction and annihilation of this earth. We are, the meek will inherit the earth. Heaven will be here. God is going to transform this earth, not in the way that he created the earth originally ex nihilo or out of nothing, but rather in the same way that Jesus got a glorified, resurrected body out of the very same body that went to the grave and went to the tomb. That very same body is what was transformed and resurrected. We too will be resurrected with the same body that you have now. It just will become a glorified, resurrected body, okay, from the same body that goes into the ground. And so the creation itself will be restored through the fire, Mike Williams, in his book, Far as the Cursed is Found, he says it this. He says, Second Peter 3 is not one of eradication, but purgation and purification through a process of smelting. Similar to the flood, the flood didn't take the earth and make it totally different, like changing a Venus to a Jupiter. Rather, the earth was cleansed and purified, but it was still the earth. This is really important, because otherwise you're going to think this world does not matter. Herman Bobbing put it like this. Just as a caterpillar becomes a butterfly... As carbon is converted into diamond, as the grain of wheat upon dying in the ground produces other grains of wheat, as of nature revives in the spring and dresses up in celebrative clothing, as the believing community is formed out of Adam's fallen race, as the resurrection body is raised, uh, as the body is raised that is dead and buried in the earth, so too by the recreating power of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth will one day emerge from the fire-purged elements of this world, radiant and enduring glory, and forever set free from bondage to decay. So where do we get that? Well, in this text, the Bible's describing a new heavens and new earth. Now, new, there's two different Greek words for new, okay? 
And the word here is not neos, meaning new in time of origin, whereas the word kainos refers to new in nature or in quality. The new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21, therefore, means not the emergence of a cosmos totally other than the present one, but the creation of the universe, though it has been glorious renewed, it renewed, it stands in continuity with the present earth. And so, just to give you an example, Michael Horton, who wrote this long systematic theology book called The Christian Faith, and the very last paragraph of the whole book, this is page 990, and believe me, I did not read most of the other 989 pages, but I've read some of it, but very long book, but this is how he ends. And he says, if our goal is to be liberated from creation rather than the liberation of creation, we will understandably display little concern for the world that God has made. If, however, we are looking forward to the restoration of all things, Acts 3.21, and the participation of the whole creation in our redemption, that the creation will be redeemed when we are redeemed, then our actions here and now pertain to the same world that will one day be finally and fully renewed. And so you that are a doctor and you that are a lawyer, you, what you are longing for is to see new bodies and to see justice. And as teachers, you want to see people understand how to, the, the very, you know, how to think God's thoughts after him because we're going to do that in the new heavens and new earth. And so we're beginning that process now to bring the glory of God to bear on this world. And so this world matters is where I'm, where I'm trying to go with that. Now, in reference to this idea that the word like, and, and you know, sometimes people think, well, I've never been there. How can I be excited about it? And the reality is we all have these longings, right? C.S. Lewis made a big deal about the inconsolable longing, that there's, there's these things, we're, we're probably more heaven sick than we can possibly imagine, but you know, we think we're gonna fix it by getting these new gadgets at Christmas, or, or if I just get this new toy or this new thing, this new job, this new promotion, like, then I will have arrived. But maybe what we're really longing for is something much more, much bigger than that. Maybe what we're really longing for is heaven itself. But anyway, Lewis has this whole uh, treatise that he wrote called, called Transposition. And this is how he describes trying to make sense of like something that you haven't been to, okay? And this is his word picture. He says, let's picture, this is going to be, I'm going to read a little bit, but I want you to, if you, if you get this, I think it will help you because it helped me. He says, let's picture a woman thrown into a dungeon. Then she bears and rears a son. He grows up seeing nothing but the dungeon walls. This is similar to the the illustration from uh, Christmas Eve. But so this child has grown up seeing nothing but dungeon walls, the straw on the floor and a little patch of the sky seen through the grating, which is too high up and shows anything except sky. This unfortunate woman was an artist and when they imprisoned her, she managed to bring with her a drawing pad and a box of pencils. And she never loses the hope of deliverance. She's constantly teaching her son about the outer world, which he's never seen. She does it very largely by drawing him pictures. And with her pencil, she attempts to show him what fields and rivers and mountains and cities and waves and a beach are like. And he's a dutiful boy, and he does his best to believe her when, when she tells him that the outer world is far more interesting and glorious than anything in, in, in the dungeon. At times, 
He succeeds, but on the whole, he gets along tolerably well until one day he sees something that gives his mother pause. For a minute or two, they're at cross purposes. Finally, it dawns on her that he has all these years lived under a misconception. But she gasped, you you didn't think that the real world was full of lines drawn in with a lead pencil? What, said the boy? No pencil marks there? And instantly, his whole notion of the other world became a blank. For the lines by which he alone, by which he alone he was imagining it, have now been denied of it. He has no idea of that which will exclude and dispense with the lines, that of which the lines were merely a transposition, the waving treetops, the light dancing on the wear, the color, the colored three-dimensional realities which are not enclosed in lines but define their own shapes at every moment with a delicacy and a multiplicity which no drawing could ever achieve. The child will get the idea that the real world is something less visible than his mother's pictures. In reality, it lacks lines because it is incomparably more visible. So with us, we don't know what we shall be, But we may be sure we shall be more, not less, than we were on earth. Our natural experiences, sensory, emotional, imaginative, are only like the drawing. They're like penciled lines on flat paper. If they vanish in the risen life, they will vanish only as penciled lines vanish from the real landscape. Not as a candle flame that's put out but as a candle flame which becomes invisible because somebody's pulled up the blind, thrown open the shutters, and let in the blaze of the risen sun. He says, if flesh, and then he concludes by saying, if the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, Lewis just says, that's not because they're too solid, too gross, too distinct, too illustrious with being. They're too flimsy. They're too transitory. They're too phantasmal. It's going to be something so much greater than that. And so the Bible's doing, you know, John's doing his best to describe it with, it's like transparent glass, like clear glass, like the rare jewel. It's going to be greater than we can ever imagine. There'll be no lines. Then we're given these seven negatives, as I've already referred to. No mourning, no crying, no pain, no curse, no night. Nothing to defile because the reality is what we see here is there's no sin. And when there's no sin, that knocks out death. And, that, and then all the ripple effects of sin that is, is there's going to be no morgues. There's going to be no wakes. There's going to be no cemeteries. They won't be there. All that hurts and that ache gone. And we won't be able to sin. We won't want to sin. We won't think about sin. We won't grow in sin. We won't, we won't think about when to sin, where to sin, why to sin, or who to sin against. God will be loved. He'll be delighted in fully, perfectly, completely, individually, and corporately. We're going to drink from the fountain of living water, and our spiritual thirst will be forever quenched. There'll be no blasphemy, bribery, perjury, usury, jealousy, envy, hypocrisy, stolen pocket. Property, pornography, adultery, apostasy, no stealing, no cheating, cursing, complaining, coarse joking, coveting, hating, hurting, lying, lusting, striking, stabbing, shooting, murdering, murmuring, boasting, backsliding, whining, wounding, arguing, accusing, threatening, provoking, persecuting, falsifying, fornicating, raping, no laziness, no bitterness, no selfishness, no foolishness, no lukewarmness, no rebelliousness, no grieving the spirit, vexing the spirit, quenching the spirit, or resisting the spirit. It will be a negation of all that is evil and all that is sinful, and the Lord's prayer will be 
fulfilled. His name will be fully hallowed. His kingdom will have come. His will will be done. We, he will be our constant daily bread. All our debts have been paid. We won't have to forgive anybody. There'll be no temptation. We'll be delivered from evil. His kingdom and his power will be forever and ever. And all of his people will say, amen. You see, that's what we're going towards. All God's enemies defeated. All God's people thoroughly delivered from evil. We're more than conquerors in Christ. There's a victory here. There's a consummation. There's a wedding. There's a feast. <clears throat> the Tower of Babel is gone, and God's kingdom has come down and brought the kingdom down and made it here on earth. And in this life, he's preparing us for this weight of glory that's before us. And so we need to persevere. And let me just close with an illustration. I read this week, actually was listening to Dane Ortland's sermons, and I would just encourage you, if you want to listen to some good preaching, he's much better than me. He's got three sermons on Revelation 21 that are just wonderful, very helpful. But he reminded me of a story that was in Ian Gates, or Ian Gates, that was funny, <laughs> Ian Murray's biography on Jonathan Edwards. Um, he has a quote by David Hall, and David Hall was a preacher in the 1700s, and he was in the pews in the sanctuary when Jonathan Edwards was being terminated. So here's the greatest preacher in America in his church that he's been in for over 20-some years, over a week's worth of proceedings. They voted, and 253 people voted. And guess how many voted to keep him? 20. So 253. 30 or 21 people, I think, voted to keep him. 230 or 231 voted out with him, dismissed him. And this guy, David Hall, was writing in his diary. He wrote the whole thing. But this is what he said about, Ang about Edwards. He said this, The faithful witness received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismissal. His happiness was out of the reach of his enemies, meaning he, he had something so much better that was satisfying him. You see, this is what we need, this hope that we have when it fills us and we get this and we realize this is what our future lies. Then the hardships of this life, we're able to say, all right, they're bad, but we can get through that because we have something so much better that lies before us. I hope that that is your hope because if your hope is in the things of this world, if it's in a spouse, if it's in your job, if it's in your career, if it's in your beauty, if it's in your grades, I mean, at some point, those things will be taken from you. And you may have them and you, I'm not saying don't, don't prosper in your work, don't use your mind. You know, God has made different people attractive. Praise God, that's all, you know, let be, God be glorified in that. But you can't make that your ultimate because that's not ultimately what's going to satisfy your hearts. He's put eternity in our hearts. That's how the service began. We live in time, but he's put something much bigger in our hearts. And here we're seeing God's people are going to experience it forever and ever. And I want you to experience it and be there too. Let's pray.
Lord, satisfy our hearts with yourself. We thank you that you are going to prepare a place for us and then you will come to take us to be with you forever. We praise you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And you will be with your people forever. And thank you that you will take away all the tears, all the sorrow, all the sin. No, we just give it to you right now. There's so much unbelief in our hearts, so much over-desire, impatience, pride, lust, jealousy, discontent. Lord, forgive us. Set our hearts, may we set our hearts fully on the grace of God to be revealed to us and prepare our minds for action. And may we be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. We ask in your name. Amen.